Back to the weekly rondo. I am your host, as usual, Nick Morales. Unfortunately, we are missing my glorious co-host, Nipun Chopra. Nipun's been been absent from a variety of mediums recently. Twitter, because people won't stop insulting him, but he's also absent on this podcast, unfortunately. But we, we do miss him. We do send our, I guess, consult- condolences out, even though nothing really has bad has happened to him. But joining us today is, is our, you know, Great guest. I have great guests on this podcast. I sound like Donald Trump right now, but he really is a great guest. Um, the poet, the prophet, as we were talking about <laughs> uh, pre-podcast. John McKenzie, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing good. Uh, you originally, you and I sort of came into contact via Twitter, obviously. That's how I m- meet most of my friends nowadays. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I had you had me on the team of John O'Shea's podcast, the summer special, in which they were doing a Manchester, you did a Manchester City special, obviously. Um, and you've been doing that every week, or not every week, but you know, you've been trying to get through all 20 teams for next year's Premier League season and sort of get a, a, a ground's eye view of each club, right? With, with these summer special pods. Yeah, that's right. We've I've just recorded the fifth one uh, with Brighton and Hove Albion, which is really good fun. A couple of really good uh, speakers on there, David Hartrick and Jonathan Harding. You probably know both of those guys. Um, yeah, I've really enjoyed it. But that said, it's been a lot of effort um, because I've had to almost, well, I'm trying to record two episodes a week and they're running to anything between about 50 and one hour and 30 minutes long each. So some some of these people who I'm interviewing are podcast um, hosts who are dedicated to running podcasts for the team that I'm interviewing them about. So they have nothing short of a lot of opinions about their teams, which is great. It's, it's really good to interview people who are fans of, of clubs and who know the intimate workings of their clubs from top to bottom. And the, the general premise of the of the summer break series is basically allowing the fans to tell you what's going on. So hopefully, like you say, get a little bit more of a ground's eye view. Uh, and it's proven to be really popular. So I'm, I'm enjoying doing that, although it does lead to a few sleepless nights. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is fantastic. And I think... From my perspective, that was what I planned to do with my podcast when Nipun offered me, you know, to, the ability to host one on on the ULF network and getting people that are good enough or that you deem good enough to speak on on a podcast and can do so, and then working out the times cross continent and then doing all of those things is a headache enough. But then you take it an extra step because I have the tendency to ramble and not sound as eloquent as I should on podcasts at times because I've just had ridiculous amounts of caffeine that day. And you you make, you, you, I mean, you made me sound amazing on the, the Manchester City podcast because you <laughs> go through not and true you edit things out. No, it's true. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, folks, if, you haven't, if you're listening to this and you haven't listened to Team of John O'Shea's podcast, it's an excellent one. It's one that I highly recommend, and especially the summer special because he's doing great work. He's getting the fans of each team to really speak their mind, and I think that's something that we don't see enough. We we listen to five or six guys that their analysis is very good of maybe the top six, but having that individual perspective of someone that we know for a fact 
watches that team week in, week out. You know, we, we barely ever hear, you know, the, the Stoke podcast was a good one because we barely ever hear anything about Stoke. Like the guys said on there, they were literally last on match of the day every week, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. And the guys at Wizard of Drivel podcast are brilliant guys. They're really, really nice guys. And yeah. one, of the things I've, one of the things I've found actually is that the people who run podcasts um, are just great people. Because you have to put a huge amount of time, a huge amount of effort in, and the majority of it's unpaid and often unrecognized. But yeah, the the sort of um, aesthetic that I'm going for is is precisely, and I think we're going to talk about this as we go through this uh, episode. But the idea that you know football writing, football media, football discourse has become very stilted, uh, very stagnated, um, and there's a whole group of people out there who are actually doing really exciting things. And all you have to do is find them and they're willing to, to help you out. So, yeah, the, the Summer Break podcast has been all about finding those people um, and actually injecting a little bit of life into the discussions about um, these clubs. There's a there's a sort of a, a creeping assumption that the football media, the mainstream football media, is the pinnacle of what you can expect from football discourse. And it's just palpably untrue you know no, no one really particularly cares what for example martin keown thinks about stoke city like you say um and so it's it's hardly surprising that the majority of people can consider clubs like stoke to be boring because the the mainstream media feed them this this sort of, sort of i guess subtle idea that you know stoke are only good enough for last slot on match of the day so hopefully uh, as well like getting people who are watching these clubs week in week out what you're getting is actually a little bit more of an excitement about uh, the the upcoming premier league season uh, particularly when like you say the the top six is becoming so elite that it almost seems pointless for the rest of these clubs to exist so i've really enjoyed just getting to grips with with the the bottom the teams at the bottom of the of the table and hearing about their youth uh, systems, hearing about what they expect their clubs to do through the through the summer, listening to what they think that the manager will have to do, uh, responses to new managers, responses to new players, etc. It's been really good fun. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that, like you said, it's one of it's a viewpoint that I think, especially myself, I'm sort of a an extracted figure from the the landscape in which I consistently cover, in the sense that I'm a Manchester City fan, but I've never or I've been to England like. A handful of times and I don't really have a, that great of a grasp on the culture but as a as a fan of a team within the top six and especially one that's been so successful within the past few years it's always interesting for me to hear the expectations and the emotions and everything that goes into supporting a team like Southampton or a Newcastle mm-hmm. or a Brighton Hove Albion or, or any of these guys that you know they're, they're not competing for a Champions League spot and there's you know there's nothing wrong with that and the, the fact that I have to say that, you know, kind of underlines the problem, but it's just, it's humbling and it's, it gives you a, a sense of scope to hear like, you know, we're not, we're not asking for much, just kind of get mid table, maybe top 10 and, and a, and a good cup run and we'll be happy. Whereas, you know, fans at the other end of the spectrum are, if we're not, if we're not competing for the treble, you know, then the manager should be fired. And I just, I think it's great that, like you said, there's so much content being pumped out out there by people who genuinely have a really good grasp of what's going on, and mm. you've illuminated that. And you've also done that through sort of the the competitions that you've been running on sort of the, on Twitter uh, through the mm. Biro and and then the Crayon Door, which is a interesting competition to say the least. Yeah, and I think I mean we we originally wanted to talk about. St- 
thoughts on this um, episode. And I think this really, what you're, the phenomenon that you're talking about really is explained by the rise of statistical analysis in the last few um, seasons at the very least. This idea that, you know, people watch Man City, Man United, Liverpool, Arsenal, Tottenham, Chelsea, etc. Because there's a creeping assumption again that actually that elite football is and I guess the the end justifies the means and so you get this idea that we want when you talk about statistics you're always talking about metrics so that's a sort of list of everyone arranged from best to worst etc etc and and that feeds into the, the the league table as well so we get this assumption that you know the best team is the top six why would you possibly want to support a team like Watford who finished 17th just outside the relegation places what possible enjoyment could you get out of that uh, and that's one of the one of the things I kind of want to talk about when it comes to statistical analysis the sort of the assumptions that it I guess leave it subtly implants in our brain that um, you know football is about achieving certain things rather than actually for, for a lot of people, I mean, there's 92 teams in the league, English league structures mm. and 91 of them don't win the top league every every season. So the question then becomes, well, well what is it that we, we look at in um, as football supporters? What is it we're looking forward to? And that's a question I've been asking a lot, even in the Premier League, like the, the top league of, in the English league systems. What is it, if it's hard for someone like a Stoke fan to finish nine, uh, three seasons at ninth over and over again, what about a team like, I don't know, Leeds United, where we finish consistently 15th for a while mm-hmm. every season? What, how do you support a club when you know three months in your season is going nowhere? You're not going to be in a relegation battle. You're not going to be in a promotion fight, et cetera, et cetera. So that one of the things that really, really interests me about football increasingly is, is fan culture. Not because I think, I think it's a very cliched thing to say, isn't it? You know, it's a very hipster thing to say. Oh, you know, I, I'm interested in fan culture as though this that means is a, This is a supreme hipster podcast. So it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Indulge in that all you want. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and I think that, you know, there, there is something to that. But, you know, for me, coming from the north of England, you know, that there is a very there's a very sort of cultural accretion to the concept of football. And there are people for whom the football club is is their life. They they not there's not so many people now who spend their week working to afford the ticket to go, mm-hmm. I would say. But there's still it still does happen. And those people have a completely different assumption about what football is about than someone who's uh, I, I suppose dipping their feet in the pool of uh, football statistical analysis, mm-hmm. and they have a completely different assumption about what f- that football is about. And so, what really started off my critique, if I want, if you want to call it, of, uh, of football statistics, was this idea that actually it feels as though the more that statistics becomes um, palpable within the way that we talk about football, actually the more those sorts of kinds of uh, approaches where you're talking about cultural things rather than, you know, metrics about who's the best footballer, et cetera, the more those dropped out entirely. And I, I think that's a bad thing. And, and again, my critique of uh, statistics has a lot to do with this idea that it actually it reduces the rich diversity of the, the football discourse. That's what worries me. It's not that I think stats is wrong, which is, I think, the impression that a lot of people get when they hear me mouthing off on twitter um but yeah that's the sort of background to, to what i what i was talking about and that feeds then into the the stuff that i'm doing about football media uh, the reason why i want to hold something like a 
a biro door to see what people think is the pinnacle of football writing. But then the, the reason you then hold the crayon door is because you say, look, we need to have more diversity in in football writing. And and what's what's increasingly happening is that that people only want to read things that tell you next season Paul Pogba is going to be the most important player in the Premier League. So that's the sort of background to to my beef with stats, as it were. Right, and I think there's a lot there's a lot to unpack there, definitely. And I think you've laid that out ex- extraordinarily well. I couldn't have worded it better myself. And as someone that indulges a lot in sort of the analytical, because I think there's three there's three main communities within, I guess, the deeper analysis of football. And I think a lot of what you said there was true football is something that everybody can enjoy for a number of different reasons in a number of different ways. There are people that use, and I think even people like myself who indulge in the analytical and statistical analysis of the sport, I still use it as an escape. I think that's one of the most fun things that I can do, and that's really how I enjoy it. But how someone else may enjoy it may be completely different. You know, They don't want to think about all the other stuff that goes along with it, and they don't want to think about the numbers and all this stuff. And I think really that's where the discrepancy begins because then obviously you have those two groups of people that enjoy it in different ways. They're watching the same thing, and then there are palpable results from that thing that they're sharing, right? Mm. And so then the results create a discourse on, well, why did the result happen, whether it be negative or positive? And that's where the disagreement begins. Whereas I think some of the people in the traditional community, a lot of the time, at least in my experience, and one of the things that motivates me in my football writing and everything that I've done up until this point has been, and the reason I enjoy statistics and analytics so much is because in my mind, I think a lot of what happens on the pitch is more down to the things that the coaches prepare for using, not necessarily even using numbers, but I'm more of a tactics guy than I am anything else. And there are people that are willing to detest that. You know, they're saying that all the all really managers need to do or, you know, they're reducing it to a point where I almost consider it to be insulting. And yeah. I, I think the, the discrepancy begins there and that's really where the debate begins. But I think you make an extremely valid point in the sense that statistics can be used to reduce players. But that's why statistics, just like football, are sort of really dependent on who and how the player, the, the person who's using statistics is using them to, to prove a point to a certain extent. Because I never subscribe to the idea that a player is better than one another. I think those player rankings that like Bleacher Report or whoever comes out and does and says, you know, um, are ridiculous. Because how do you compare someone like Thiago Alcantara to Marcelo? Or how do you compare mm-hmm. Musa Dembele to, to you know, Bonucci? These the the people are obsessed. Some people within football media and some people within you know football fandom are obsessed with ranking players and who's the best English player and who's the best this that and the other. And I think the early statistics and the early use of statistics never really gave an accurate picture as to who is better or who has a good effect because goals, assists, passes, those those don't really tell you anything, and they can tell you anything that you want given how you use them. And that's really the beauty of analytics and and deeper statistical work from someone like myself because now, and this is something that I mentioned in response to your thread, and and we can continue this conversation, of course, but um, you said how do you appreciate through the numbers the effect of someone like Luka Modric? And it was funny because I had just scrolled by someone who was making the argument that because United fans, they have this weird 
defense of a lot of different players, um, <laughs> which which comes comes and goes, and and they they feel the need to argue and, and prove that their point their player is better or whatever. But someone was <laughs> trying to make the point that another United fan had told another United fan that they would rather have Luka Modric as opposed to Paul Pogba, and then they went to you know goals, assists forward passes and chances created and Paul Pogba dominated in every single one of those categories over Luka Modric. <laughs> but those don't really give you the full picture. And so mm-hmm. then for me, the, most, the the greatest thing about that and what adds on to it to make it even cooler is that it's done by a fan, but someone like Paul Riley. Paul Riley created Football Fact Man on Twitter if you want to go follow yeah. him, folks. He's a great guy. Um, a great man. Yeah, he is. Because he, he also works in like child services and helps kids in like his real life on top of doing like he, I, I actually had him on the podcast if I can go off on a ta- on a tangent to my tangent um, and he told me in his early days of collecting data he watched games like watched all however many games there were in a weekend and then collected the data by hand he was essentially doing what Opta does as a company. <laughs> by hand so that he could create his own model, which is incredible. But anyways, so Paul Riley, to, to enter the debate, I guess to a certain extent, of Paul Pogba versus Luka Modric, has created a uh, passing model that, to some extent, measures or attempts to measure the difficulty of certain passes depending on where that pass begins and where that pass ends. And so mm. that's one of the cool things that someone in, in the analytics community has done. And I don't think he's like the first one to do that, but you get what I'm saying. He created his own model. Mm. So... That's one of the cool things that I think analytics has done, and I'm I'm curious to hear sort of what you think about people not necessarily using that to like, oh, this player's better, but just more like we can get a more concrete understanding of what players are doing and how they're effective. Yeah, and I mean, there's two there's two trajectories we could take at this point. We could talk about the nature of stats. We could say, for example, well, when we're comparing two players, Luka Modric, Paul Pogba. It's, it's very tempting to just go to those sort of closed event stats and say passes completed, key chances created, et cetera, et cetera, and you compare those two. But obviously that just doesn't work because these two players are playing in a team of 10 other players mm-hmm. and, and the function that they have in that team is, is entirely different in each case. Now, there are certain players who perform functions that can be quite individual, I'd suggest. So something like a central defensive midfielder mm-hmm. And I think what's really telling about what we're talking about here is that actually the only really, really key players, I think, I may well be wrong, but the, the, the key players who get pulled out all the time with respect to um, being picked up, scouted through statistical modeling are usually players like central defensive midfielders. So you have uh, N'Golo Kante and you have Idrissa Gay. These guys are always being touted as guys that they picked up. See, the funny through- thing about that is that I would argue from a you know statistics and a analytics perspective and even a tactical perspective that they're one of the most difficult positions to to really measure how effective they are because I think in some systems, N'Golo Kante, or like let's say, oh, who was it? So Chabi Alonso, when he played at Real Madrid, mm. he was a defensive midfielder and he, he was making like no tackles. Yeah. Because this, the the team, the way they pressed, the way they got forward, the way they compacted the play between, the, you know, the last line of defense and the and the first mm. line of attack, and also the way Chabi Alonso was able to position himself in the possession they kept, you know, he was playing a defensive midfield role, but he wasn't making any tackles. But then N'Golo Kante or Nemanja Matic or whoever, who's playing the same position in 
possibly even a similar system, is making tons of tackles, and that's because mm. of the way they play. So sorry, sorry to interrupt you there. But yeah, I just, and I think that I mean this 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 does I think help my point insofar as when you compare. And Idrissa Gay and N'Golo Kante to other central defensive midfielders, mm. they make a huge amount of tackles. Yeah. And that is what people look at a lot of the time. However, yeah. it's very clear that there's a big difference between N'Golo Kante and Idrissa Gay. Yes. Definitely. And there's a, certain, there's a certain impalpable aspect to uh, what N'Golo Kante does that makes him better than Idrissa Gay. Now, that's not to say that we couldn't model that eventually statistically when we have good enough models, which is the get-out clause for all statistical models. Yeah, definitely. And tracking but data, having tracking yeah, data. Exactly. And, and, yeah, exactly. And so my point is here generally the statistical model, modeling as it happens generally picks up on these easy to easy to um, model events tackle say and and goes with that and does the best it can with them um however that i said <laughs> about five minutes ago there's another route we can take and this is the route that i kind of want to take because a lot of the time when i start critiquing stats people think that i'm doing that sort of statistical critique that i just did which is here's how stats works here's some here's some examples of why it doesn't work actually i want to take a step back and say let's do let's do a meta level critique now that sounds very um complicated and philosophical and navel gazing you might say but (laughs) all that meta means is like a step earlier so let's let's look at what we're doing before we even start doing this actual statistical modeling and this analysis and ask the question like what is it about the reality of football that allows it to be modeled statistically and what assumptions do we have in talking about the reality of football um, that allows us to think that statistical modeling might be useful? And I think my my background is in philosophy, so a lot of people immediately close off and think, oh, you know, this is one, going to be boring, and two, going to be completely <laughs> pointless. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that when we do anything um, with respect to football, there is this reality of football behind everything that we do when we're talking about football this discourse that we're having is an attempt to talk about something that happens outside of uh, uh, of the conversation and we in- attempt to bring to language um now you could say in one on one level you know the, the phenomenon of football the thing that's happening outside of us reveals itself to us in certain ways um and i would i'd say that's true um that the question then becomes, well, it, the way that it reveals itself, is it, is it simply revealing itself to us in such a way that we know everything about it? And I would say, actually, that's not necessarily clear to me as I watch football. You know, when you're sitting down watching a football match, there's a huge amount of um, data coming into your brain. You, you know, there's, there's a huge, there's, there's 22 people moving at a ball. Um, right. And it's impossible for you to, you know, actually conceive of what's going on all at once. So what we do then is we apply statistical models onto that to make it easier for us to pick out the the bits of data that are important Mm -hmm. um now when i start critiquing stats i'm critiquing the sort of underlying ideas that we have behind that because i think some people think you know you can reduce everything that happens in football down to stats and there won't be anything left over there'll be no residue whatsoever and what i think is very interesting is the fact that i i just don't think that's the case Mm -hmm. i don't think that we could ever entirely represent what's going on in a football match using numbers and so my critique of of stats is not that it doesn't work of course it works we wouldn't be doing it if if it didn't work but it's this idea that one it's far more complex than we allow it to be sometimes you know the there is a relationship going on between something outside us and then we're trying to bring that into words and that's a complicated thing we need to think about how we're doing that to make sure we're doing it as best we can 
But at the same time, we sometimes operate with a faulty idea of what's going on there to the extent that we kind of think, well, and this is why I said before, you know, there's the get out clause of all statistical models is, well, if we had a better model, we could probably get there in the end. And that's mm. for me, that's an entirely false idea. There never, there's never going to be um, a model which, which accurately um, represents what's going on outside us. Yeah, of course, it will, it will uh, attempt to bring out those things that are useful about that phenomenon that's happening outside us. But we don't ever have this conversation about why it is that we think statistics is um, a useful way of doing things or what the pitfalls of that might be. Mm-hmm. Now, I've talked for quite a while now, so I'm going to let you jump in at this point. But <laughs> do, do, you, do, you, do you ever see that sort of conversation ha- happening in statistical um, discussions? Or is it just the assumption is, well, we do stats and therefore we're going to get on with it. And the, the real issue there is not not the, the preliminary ideas that we have about why we do stats, but whether or not the actual stats themselves work in in practice well i i think okay to speak to some of that i think so being more a contributing member of the tactics community as opposed to the analytics community i can say that many of us are many the, the people who understand how to use this stuff and like you said numbers numbers to some extent work they help us quantify and understand information that would be too large for our brains to process because like you said and I'm of the belief being of a tactical background that you know there's 22 people on the pitch and the shape that which in which each offensive or defensive team is taking is affecting the ball the ball at play in at some point in time so it's really difficult for us to draw all the conclusions that we can by simply watching a game and that's where stats helps us and I think Anyone who really understands how to use statistics, how to use analytical models to the best of our ability, understands that it's all—it's watching, it's tactical analysis, it's analytical analysis, it's all of these things combined, and that will best give us an idea of how to analyze it. And that's from a yeah. professional standpoint. Yeah. So, with that being said, I think that there are there are people in between the the two extremes to a certain extent. The stats. Yeah. And then the people who are who are not really analyzing the game at all, or in their opinion, there there isn't that deep of an, al- an analysis to begin with. And mm-hmm. there are people, like you said, and I think this is where people have the issue with statistics: is that people use it as a defi- as a definer, as this number is is definitive of what this means, and that's yeah. never true. That can never be true. And you're completely right in saying that. There's no, I don't think at any point in time, even if we have tracking data, we have the perfect model, whatever, the perfect model will never be able to tell us, to give us the full picture because it's simply, life is random and Mm. analytics people and statistics people call it good or bad variance as sort of a joke. Um, You either have good or bad variance in your model. So, but but the reality of the situation is, is that we can't account for everything, but it does give us a better picture. And that's where I come come from, mm-hmm. from advocating for for numbers perspective is that it, it helps us define things better because there are some people that I've had conversations with out there that say, you know, well, the, the best shot is the one that goes in. Well, it's like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, you're right. But also like you can, if a, if a team, if a team has... If it's, you know, if if you watch a team and they play extraordinarily well for ninety minutes and they have all possession, they're breaking down the team, they're getting great shots on goal, and it's not just luck; it's 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 they're creating great chances and all this other stuff. And then they just don't happen to score. You know, the goalie's having a great day; they're they're not finishing incredibly well or whatever. And the other team goes down and, and has one shot and one goal and, and scores. You know, you can say that 
technically, by the numbers, by the pure statistics, the team that won was the better team on the day. But that's simply not true. Because and, and that's where analytics and sort of method comes into into play because nine times out of ten, that team that practiced all those things and were creating those great chances, they'll have greater <clears throat> success over time because of because they're the better team. But on that given day, you can't really make a if you're only going by those numbers, you can't really make a, a consistent or concrete argument that they were the better team because they lost. And that's simply how it is. But I think I'm going a little off off base no, of, no. of what well, questions you're asking, but but coming back to the conversation, the conversations that I've been having on Twitter, mm-hmm. the frustration that I have with those conversations is immediately that everything gets thrown into this binary. So I'm fully, I'm happy to say that stats are useful. We should be doing stats in the same way that I'm happy to say, you know, science is fairly useful in, in everyday life. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not the sort of person who denies the usefulness of vaccination or, you know, I'm not the sort of person who would never have a blood transfusion because I think it's weird. <laughs> science is useful for, for for things stats is useful too the problem is is that i think so much of the conversation that happens in statistics now automatically assumes this binary between you are entirely positive about stats or you're a stats denier which is very unhelpful and and the reason it's unhelpful is this is that what happens is you start you start to get a problematic power dynamic in in a lot of conversations that happen and so what happens is this i make a claim about stats someone comes in and says this person's rejecting the concept of stats Mm. i've got to argue against them so they argue against me we have a conversation for a few tweets and then what happens is we come to a point where we're like actually we uh, we agree and all of those things that you're saying about the way that stats can be used doesn't actually happen with the people who actually know what they're doing when they're using stats which isn't my argument my argument has never been that the people who use stats properly are not using stats properly my argument has been that as a as a person who uses statistics, you have a responsibility as well to the idea that the way that those statistics are disseminated mm-hmm. in the, the general football discourse. And the, the problem is, is that I think a lot of people who are engaging in stats are so sort of cloistered in their ideas and they have all these cabals of people who they respect and so they'll talk to. And then anyone outside of that, they kind of think, well, I I just don't care. I'm not responsible for trying to explain stats to you. The problem is, is that social media has opened up a world where every average punter is thinking in some way statistically. Now, that doesn't mean to say that they're doing stats properly and that's precisely the problem is that we get these Twitter accounts which which do the, the standard sort of Paul Pogba's game 75% 75% plus completion, um, three key chances created, one goal, and at the end of it, an emoji or something. And yeah, that, yeah, that yeah, frustrates yeah. me because mm-hmm. it, it, what we're doing there is we're doing, under the name of statistics, things are happening which actually are unhelpful. Um, yeah, because I, I, t- I certainly agree with that. And I totally get what you're saying because I think there are a lot of people within the statistical world that use so like I, I, in reference to Paul Pogba just because he's an extremely polarizing figure there there there's a there could be a match where you know i think even one time i read it and it said Paul Pogba has completed four take-ons in this in throughout the 90 minutes more than any other player on the pitch and it's like okay well those take-ons i remember watching that game those take-ons were poorly done and he attempted like 50 so four out of 50 is terrible and you know i'm just i'm over exaggerating the example but you get what i mean so i certainly i think there's a responsibility within people within statistics to use them properly but there's also i think the reason that those accounts those people use statistics in that way is uh, uh, a reason further removed from football analysis which is that it's 
it's eye-catching. That yeah. that tweet, everybody that wants to support the Paul Pogba agenda or whatever will retweet yeah. that because it backs up their idea. And that's the thing about misused statistics is that it can rep- represent any viewpoint. You can say, Alexander Lacazette completed this many take-ons and they could have lost the match and, and whatever. So you can misrepresent statistics so much that yeah. people are doing it for... I guess I wouldn't even, I don't know if to call it nefarious reasons, but they're definitely misrepresenting statistics. And that's part of the problem yeah. is that there are a lot of people out there that do misrepresent those statistics and use them to get retweets, which, you know, leads to engagement and everything that has to do with, you know, building almost a, a website or a business to, to make money. Right. Yeah. And I think the reason why I find this so problematic is because What's happened, generally speaking, I think, within football media, I mean, it's, it's a general trend that's happened around the world in the last 40 years. We've um, the, the general discourse about various things has become more liberal in the classic sense. Now, what that means is, is that it used to be the case that, you know, you could say things that you thought um, you could make value judgments. And it was okay. You were allowed to hold value judgments. We've got to a point in human history, which I think is a a very good point to have got to, that there's an awareness that just because I think something doesn't make it true. Um, And so that's developed into into a sort of program of social liberalism, which means that we are accepting of people regardless of various particularities that differentiate us. Um, And this is, again, a really good thing to happen. But the problem is, is that when you when you start operating with within that sort of framework of, of ideas, when you say, well, I think this is the case, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you will think that's the case. And so you, you what you, what slowly starts happening is you start actually devaluing discourse because you can't actually have any conversation with someone unless they agree with you on certain parameters. Now, why that's become a problem is because what happened in the economic sphere uh, in the last 50 years was there it got to a point where we were saying that we have no way of valuing things anymore. We don't know how to talk about value. And so what we, what, what happened is that neoliberalism came on the scene and neoliberalism said, well, we'll what we'll do is we'll simply, rather than talking about value as a, as a sort of thing that can be decided, we'll just take market values as a, as a, as a truth. Mm. Uh, and then what you do with that then is, is the market dictates what, what's going on. Now I think we're reaching a similar thing in football discourse and that discourse, rather than having market values in the economic sense being used in that sense, we're now using statistical values in that sense and ironically what happens when you do that kind of thing is rather than becoming liberal in the sense where you're open to all ideas you've we've just ended up with a very reductive sphere of football discourse where it's very hard to talk about things without using statistical data as a a way of backing up what you're saying and the reason why i think that's bad isn't because i think that stats is bad as as a general uh, concept is that it's now become the only way that we can talk about football and what we've lost there is a huge amount of richness, diversity. You know, where where have the Hugh McIlvanny's gone from the the world of football writing? Why does no one? Why can no one write about football unless they have just data there? And so it becomes a very turgid and dry conversation a lot of the time. Um, and so my big worry is, and this is why I'm I, I want to critique stats, is because I want to avoid it becoming totally hegemonic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, of course, stats is great. This is this is really good. But we have a we, we live. In, I've used the word. Uh, I've used science as an example. Mm-hmm. Science is a great thing. Football statistics, analytics, and t- t- tactical analysis—they should all be the science of football. Yeah. But we have we have poetry. We have we have drama. We have prose. We have everything um, in this world that we talk about. If if science tells us something about the usefulness of the material reality we live in, prose and ethics and religion, they all tell us completely 
valid things about another aspect of that of that thing. And sometimes I worry when I talk to people who do stats that they 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 sort of buy into actually this idea that, well, you know, I do I do stats. I look at football using statistical models. You'll find something else to do. And I find that whilst I, I admit that, you know, that it's good that they can admit that other people are looking at football in different ways. What frustrates me is that you're, you're getting a sort of creeping liberalism there again, which is this idea that, well, I, you think this is true. I think this is true. And at the end of the day, if we all think that everything's different is true, then the, the object of what we're trying to talk about becomes almost meaningless. What I want to say is, no, there is this reality out there. There's this, this, this football phenomenon that we're talking about and we're all talking about it in different ways but at the end of the day it, something is still being revealed by that thing that we're talking about and so i'm a little bit worried that the football discourse is becoming too stats heavy to the extent that stats is basically stomping out anything else that, that isn't there um so let me I, ask you this then if i can yeah if no, I jump can in query I a bit no no, I, no a bit I, I think <laughs> i think i think you make an excellent point there and i i, I noticed that in, in a lot of things it's almost like you have to include some bog standard statistic. And I think you're, you're getting frustrated because you see that as, okay, uh, which, which is completely valid and I completely agree with. You're getting frustrated because you see an article in, in Unibet or Eastbridge or, or whatever, whoever, Yahoo, and uh, a good journalist who's good at writing and, and that's their forte has to toss in you know, some goals or assist metric because that's the required thing nowadays. That's, yeah. it, it has to be a, a part of the article. But I'm coming at it from also a statistics and analytical perspective saying that those basic numbers aren't telling me anything and they aren't, aren't telling me anything in the first place. So he's not even using those statistics, right? So there's a frustration from both ends of the, of the spectrum in the way that statistics are yeah. um, monopolizing the conversation. And I think... I think conversation between two statisticians about the 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 efficacy of the model that they created is a good conversation but also conversation between two people of you know uh, the more artistic or I guess new not not, not nuanced cuz I don't want to disparage it but you know what I mean between those two is also a valued conversation but then I would ask you to a certain extent which is I think which is my original point which was in the analysis of how good a player is or how effective a team's tactic is or how well they played in a certain game, I think it's difficult for people, not only within the statistics community, but also in the you know just general football fandom, to listen to someone. And I would almost wonder how, I would wonder what or how someone who isn't using statistics, how they would explain, you know, or, or tactical concepts, how they would explain in, in terms of an analyzing, you know, how, how good a team was during yeah. a match or why they won. And, and yeah. I would ask you, you know, I would ask you that, I guess. Okay. So the, the way that I basically understand what's happened in football writing is that, you know, in the, at the end of the, I guess it's the Victorian era, we, start developing a, a sort of form of football writing and that comes from the fact that football is becoming more popular but at the same time there's no way of disseminating reports about what's going on in football so uh, there comes a point when football editors say well you know what? we need some way of being able to disseminate the information about matches that have happened so you you start getting football journalists coming through and they write their reports at the back um and there's a certain amount of flair creativity and people uh, they use pseudonyms in a, in a weird way in the same way that crypt crossword writers do so there's a sort of romance attached to them uh, but what you do is you buy the paper and you read the match report you, you have no way of knowing what's going to happen in in that game until you read that report mm -hmm. 
what happens now is we have the internet. Everything is disseminated to us immediately. And so the, the entire uh, concept of football journalism has changed in the last 10 years, if not less, overnight. And the form of football journalism is still catching up with the, with the actual content now. So what, what I think is the problem now is that because we don't need to have match reports written, and you can't write a match report just as a sort of factual thing. People want, people want to be able to read it in a way that is, is attractive. So you had these people who, who everyone would jump on, on their columns because they had a really good way of writing. They were entertaining, et cetera, et cetera. And used to even used to get it with um, radio five live as well. So some of the post-match commentary that you get, you get someone like Stuart Hall, who basically ends up eulogizing Shakespeare by the end of his match reports. But <laughs> what's happened now is that everyone's seen the game. Everyone's seen all the act- action that they need to see. And so we, we've sort of we've sort of lost our way a little bit. So I think the reason why stats is so important now is because we've we've all seen the bare content of what we need to see. We now need to have that interpreted for us. So statistics is brilliant for that. Now, at the same time, what I'm saying is, well, we still need to have some kind of romantic side to to the way that we're doing football discourse. And I, I agree. As soon as you start getting romantic, it's, it, it's, I'm not just simply advocating that we push the horse over the, completely the opposite direction. Mm. We need to get the balance right. Because if, if we start just trying to write well without having any real understanding of what's going on in the pitch, we end up with Barney Roney. Um, and that's not what we want. Yeah. We don't, you know, that's what The Guardian are trying to do there is they're trying to hark back to a time when People used to write with a classical education. Yeah. They would write with a brilliant bon mot. They, they understood what was going on. But they still had to talk about the thing that was going on, at the, the, the reality that was going on at the end of the day. You still have to be able to talk about that in a way that's actually reflective of what's going on. Barney right. Rooney doesn't do that. You can read a whole Barney Rooney piece and he'll talk about three footballers. One of them will be Ronaldo. One of them will be Messi. And one of them will be Deli Alley. No one, no one cares. Literally, no one cares about what he's saying. What people care about is the way that he says it. Right. But that frustrates me as well because we do need to, we need to be saying something about the actual reality behind it. So I think mainly what I'm trying to say is, yeah, the stats is useful, but we need to get the balance right between just sort of bald statistical information that is going to send people to sleep, and also flowery language, which is actually not saying anything about what we're actually wanting to to talk about. So I think what I'm, what I'm trying to say and this may be simply that i'm completely inarticulate but what i'm trying to say is that i want to see more football writers who write well Mm. write interestingly and it doesn't have to just be you know it doesn't you don't need to write about what's happened on a football pitch for that to be the case i think a lot of what rory um smith is doing at the moment is fantastic because he is, is actually looking at interesting aspects of football nothing to do with necessarily what's going on the pitch now does rory smith write well probably not but the, the the way that he's the, the ideas that he's bringing across now are, are really interesting and unique and i think it's no surprise that rory smith has ended up in america writing for the new well writing for the new york times i think he still lives over here but why is that the case well because american journalism has a, is a much more adept at being able to write those pieces if you get uh, sports illustrated um the, the stuff that's going on in, in those columns is much more interesting than what's going on in, I would suggest, British uh, journalism. And I, I don't know why that might be the case. It may be the case that statistics have been going on in American sports much longer. So there, there hasn't been this sort of renaissance that we've had over here at the same time that we've had the Internet revolution. So there's, there's plenty of things to talk about in this regard. So I'll, I'll, I'll shut up again and let you come back at me. No, I think that was fantastic. And I, I, I think I wasn't completely grasping what you were trying to say originally. But now I certainly understand that. And I think finding the balance is a necessity. And to some extent, it's what I try to do with my writing. I 
try to combine a tactical analysis with a little bit of flair, with a little bit of spunk, you know, trying to to compare Juventus to the eternal the eternal black and white. You know, I said in my Napoli piece that that you know Napoli were disappointed because there was no room for the auxiliary blue of the or light blue of their kits. There was only the the dark and deep black and white of result or failure, and there was Juventus in their kits. And I, I, I guess I'm pumping up myself there, but it, it is what I try to do because I think. It, I've always been inclined to write. I've always liked writing, and that writing is something that is fantastic when you apply it to something as great as football. Because football's a beautiful thing. Football's a, be- a beautiful yeah. thing that we all enjoy, and that's that's really part of it. But sort of moving on to the to the next, not to the next thing, but sort of the the other end of the spectrum, which is another thing that I think frustrates not only me and you and other people in the community, which is something that we've seen a pushback from in the past, I don't know, five years with everything from football fan channels to all these, all these different bloggers coming out and all these different podcasts. And I, I think I'd like to hear sort of your opinions on the traditional football media. And like you said, and like you said at the beginning of your, your own podcast, the, the received wisdom that is traditional football media. And I think we're, it, it, when I was thinking about this the other day, I, I have been frustrated by this problem for so long that I think I've accepted that. I think it's more of a generational thing to hmm. look to a professional and look to their opinion as a point of validity within a situation of football. Because I think as much as those guys talk about, you know, confidence and the intangibles and how much that effect that has an effect on the game and how much I disagree with that, I think to a certain extent there was an element of truth to that when they played the game. The game wasn't as tactical, the game wasn't as measured, the game wasn't as, you know, statistical as as it is now and so that's what they speak to you know they talk about the mentality of the players and how their coach inspired them and that really got a difference out of Mm -hmm. their performance but nowadays since I think it is a bit different not saying that that has no pull on on the situation but I think we can all agree that we become a bit tired of ex-pundit talking about the confidence and the mentality and that that has everything to do with the strike so I'm interested to hear your opinions on I guess those guys and and what they talk about on a day-to-day basis yeah, I think the way that I would re- start responding to this is, I mean, I, I cited on Twitter the other day the the opening line of John Berger's Ways of Seeing, which is a very cliched book, and it's sort of it's a book about how you look at art and mm-hmm. uh, how you respond to art. And he's his basic point at the beginning of that is, to what extent does knowledge affect the way that we perceive things? Mm-hmm. Um, so he says something like, Every day we wake up and we know that the sun's going to rise. We have the knowledge that the sun's going to rise. But actually the sight of the sun, the effect that it has on us, has got absolutely no relation whatsoever to the, the knowledge that we have of it. There's something there that's experienced which is completely different. And I think what's, what, what's happening when we talk to pros, ex-pros, or current pros about what's going on, is a confusion of like two different types of knowledge mm. about what we're talking about. So we've got this phenomenon of football which is going on. And the way that people think that knowledge works is is that you basically think things through in your head. So the ball comes in, uh, Man United are playing Manchester City. The ball comes in at the air, Wayne Rooney jumps up and he thinks, you know what, the only way I'm going to be able to, be able to hit this is by doing an overhead kick and he manages to score that goal. Now, people think that Wayne Rooney is a genius for doing that. But what we mean by genius is completely different to what actually happens in the process of what, what Wayne Rooney does when he 
takes that kick. And and the, the point is, is that we have a huge amount of knowledge, which is just tacit knowledge. The the philosopher Michael Polanyi talks about tacit knowledge. Now, tac- the best example I can think of for people who like football for tacit knowledge is when you start playing uh, on your PlayStation FIFA, um, it's very clumsy. You're, you, you know what you're supposed to be doing. You know where the buttons are and you're trying to manipulate those buttons to a, in, in, to a certain extent. So you're thinking about what button am I pressing here? Now, that's, that kind of knowledge is very much uh, a, a sort of heightened awareness. You're thinking about what you're doing. Mm-hmm. When you get a very good player, at, when you become a very good player at FIFA, that controller becomes part of your body and your hand. You don't even think about the fact it's there. You just do it. Right that's very similar to what's happening in football and and the process of football training is you're trying to get the footballer to be that controller you know you're starting off with this piece of materiality which is outside of you and you think you know this is really clumsy how do i how do i kick the ball properly etc etc there comes a point when after many many hours of training practice you you do that without even thinking about what you're doing so when the ball comes in wayne Rooney jumps up kicks the ball in and you ask him how he does it and he'll say i have no idea why i thought to do that because there's no there's no high level thought going on there now apply that to football punditry. What when when you have someone like Tony Cascarino on the Times podcast talking oh, to Gabriel Macotti and he, he says he, he frustrates me yeah. <laughs> more than anyone else. <laughs> because he says, Well, I'm an ex pro, so I know these things. Yeah. What does that mean? That, that that status of knowledge that he's claiming there means absolutely nothing. Yeah. It means that sometimes when he's on a football pitch, he'll do the right thing because his body has been trained that way. And so he sort of has a tacit knowledge of what he's supposed to be doing and, and it'll happen. When it comes to talking about football, he's got absolutely no right whatsoever to talk about it, particularly more than anyone else. Mm. Because what we're doing then is we're stepping back and we're saying, let's try and raise this tacit understanding of what's going on the pitch to the level of discourse. Now, we may do that really badly, but there's no way on earth that Tony Cascarino has a right to say that he's more valid critiques of what Wayne Rooney's doing than I have. And in many respects, given that I've studied as pre, as a philosopher and thought through these different types of knowledge, then surely I have maybe more of a of, of a, a right or authority to say these things. So my, my position on the, the, the traditional um, position is this, is that, yeah, of course, what they're talking about there is the same thing as what we're talking about. But they have no right to, to be talking about it in any more authority than anyone else, precisely because it's a different kind of knowledge that they have. Right. Um, and until they can get to a point where they're able to articulate um, verbally what's going on tacitly there, then I don't buy their argument. So, yeah, of course, they're going to they're gonna have some interesting things to say about um, the way that they played football. And I think one of the if you ever listen to the set piece menu podcast, which is Rory Smith's. Uh, podcast with um i didn't know andy hinchcliffe. podcast I'll, I'll give it a look yeah it's very good um but it has andy hinchcliffe on it and what's very interesting about that podcast is the fact that he has a huge amount of insight into the fact that you know when he was playing for england in the 90s he can tell you things about glenn hoddle he can tell you things about ron atkinson you know things that you would never get from anywhere else but when it comes to i think actual analysis of, of the game it's a completely different kettle of fish altogether, and and that's because it's a different type of knowledge. Now that doesn't mean to say that someone with an Oxford degree is going to be better at talking about football than someone who uh, is uneducated. That's not true at all either. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the problem the problem there is is something different. And Brian Glanville, the the football writer, has he wrote an article in the '60s, maybe '70s, called "Looking for an Idiom," and then he added to that later on in the '90s, I think, when he was saying his whole whole argument is this: How do we British football journalists don't really have an idiom to write in. They're uncomfortable writing about what they're writing about. And I think that's generally true. Um, I think the problem with Glanville is that he seems to see this as a sort of class issue. So he says, you know, you've got 
all these classically trained people who try and write about football, but they don't really understand football, so they end up hashing it, which is probably the Barney Roney problem. I mean, I should probably stop censoring myself here because I'll never get a job. But <laughs> on the other hand, I think he has, he has this sort of idea as well that you get... So there's someone like Neville Cardus, who was a cricket writer, um, who came from a working-class background. Mm. He managed to he managed to get there doing uh, in a different route. And his whole argument was, you know, there are some people out there who can, who they get the idiom because they've lived lived the game somewhat. They 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 understand the people that they're writing for. Um, and I think there also, is a big. Do you also think that there's also a bit of a pushback in terms of the culture of anti-intellectualism to some extent, because like you said, there are people out there that are classically educated that can write extremely well, but they don't really know much about football. And yet, and so they hash it, like you said, and there are people that are willing to push back against that because they say, you know, you know, you've heard the line of the maybe not so eloquently worded football fan leaving the stadium. You know, what do they know about the football? (laughs) If that can be a, a good English impersonation, if I did that well, but, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like what happened around, I think, France 98 is that football writing became vocational. Before that, you went to a newspaper, you got an apprenticeship, and you were st- stuck in whichever office you were. And the Neil Costises of this world and the John Crosses of this world entered into the, 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 the world of football writing that way. When you get to Fran- France 98, you get writers like Jonathan Wilson, etc., getting gigs with... Um, I think he started off with the FT through fairly fortuitous circumstances, but it, after that point, you know, it became the, it became credible for you to have a university degree and then go into football writing. And I think the, what's happened since then is we now ended up with very much a liberal, and you can see this happening in um, in, in the US as well. And I think Brian Curtis wrote a piece for the Ringer. Is that? A, yeah, yeah, yeah. He wrote a piece about the way that American sports writing has become liberalized um and shireen ahmed actually wrote a very good rejoinder to that in which she argued that um yeah of course it became liberal because white middle class men get all the jobs and they're all increasingly liberal which is <laughs> which is a good argument to make as well shireen but, ahmed is is fantastic in her ability to to really talk about racial issues and give a, a good yeah. perspective as to why things are happening and, and all those things but yeah yeah agreed and that's what we need more of but my point is that I think we, what we've ended up now in the UK in broadsheet writers, generally speaking, they are university educated liberal uh, individuals. And that's great. The problem is, is the majority of the people that you're writing for aren't. And so the, the, when we're talking about this crisis of football writing, like football writing, not really knowing what it's doing uh, because we've, because of social media and the internet pushing everything into, into haywire. It's also compounded by the fact that, in, in many respects, I don't think the the people who are writing actually understand their audiences uh, particularly well either. So I think there's there is something to be said about Glanville's uh, critique there, and I think we're very much in danger of of completely as football writers losing our audience because our audience don't really like the stuff that we're writing. Um, so a curious case of Claudio's Brexit, um, and it was all about the way that um, football writing has become more liberalised. But for, that that means that that there's this gap appearing between the audience and the writers. But it was really interesting when, when, when uh, Claudio Ranieri got sacked, the majority of football fans thought it was heinous, I would suggest. The majority of football writers thought it was completely understandable, but on the basis of football statistics. And it, it really struck me that because 
there is an element there of of the, what we're talking about with stats sort of pervading everything. Football writers say, well, you know, at the end of the day, they looked at the stats, they realised they weren't going to win the league, they were, they were struggling, so they moved him on. It's brilliant. They brought someone else in and the results have picked up. But the majority of people, I would suggest, who watch football have a bit more of a romantic understanding of what's going on there. And they think that regardless of what happens, Ranieri probably deserved the chance to end the season out. So... I mean, I don't know what you think about that, because obviously that's the sort of thing you'd probably agree that the stats pointed that he should leave. But the question then becomes, is is his football just become a business that is so dispassionate that the fans basically just have to have to lose out? And if that is the case, what can the sports writers actually say to the audiences that they're attempting to, I guess, regale with their football writing? Well, I think from... From a tactical perspective, I would certainly say that it was a deserved move because I was looking at some of the things that Ranieri was doing and it didn't really make sense. I think he lost his way. And I think the more I've gone on to sort of tactical analysis, the more I've tried to understand managers and what they're trying to do as opposed to criticize what they're not doing. And I think a lot of that and a lot of what intrigues me both about managers and about football tactics in general is that I think it's it, it bleeds philosophy. It bleeds sort of how that person who's managing said team thinks about the game and what they want to do with the game. Mm. And I think, I think Ranieri just tried to do something different because it, it was well-intentioned, but it didn't come off. So for me, in my mind, the majority of that season, all those results, I never bought into the, the, the idea that the players were, were revolting against him. I, I bought into the idea that he was doing the wrong things tactically. So for mm. me, it was deserved. But I think to answer more directly your question about people saying that they felt that the the sport was becoming more dispassionate and more businesslike because someone like Ranieri had been let go, you know, the the fairy tale story that was Leicester and everything that happened there, him not being allowed to finish the season, I think are is down to a couple things. I think people are always willing to 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 put out that line, but as Chris Hennage and I were were speaking a couple weeks ago, I think there's something to be said about the opinions of those people who have never had to make a decision to a certain extent. You know what I mean? Because although we view football as this purely emotional thing and this, maybe not purely emotional, but this thing that's so wrapped up in our emotions, at the end of the day, there is a lot of money going into it. There's people's, you know, there's people's careers, there's people's lives in terms of their financial status going into these things. So inherently business decisions have to be made because of that. And so I would say that, People are willing to say, yeah, Ranieri should have had the season, but if they were put in a similar position and if they were asked to, whether to sack him or not, I think they would be stricken with with the difficulty of making that decision. And I just, I, I completely agree with it. I think my rejoinder to that would be, though, that that's all well and good in the football world. But in the football writing world, you're doing exactly the opposite, which yeah. is you're not making savvy business moves with respect to the way that you're writing. So there's a reason why hundreds of thousands of people will read John Cross in the mirror because they agree with what he's saying. There's a reason why The Guardian is losing its readership because they're increasingly not saying what the people who generally read their papers want to hear. So my, my question is precisely that. What do you do when you're in this scenario when you're, you're basically removed from the audiences that you're writing, but you well, still then, have well, this then, responsibility to sell papers? Well, then... Because if they're not, if the if the people who are reading the 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 things that the Guardian is saying, and and, and maybe someone like myself, like like you said, I, I you and I maybe hold the same opinion that many football writers would have agreed with, which was that Ranieri should have been sacked. I think the only thing that we really can do, besides 
taking a completely different opinion because maybe you can predict the, the, the opinion of the masses, which is maybe what other newspapers do, and play into that, is try to explain your position as best as you possibly can. Yeah. And using statistics, using numbers, using tactical analysis is all part of that. And if someone is still disagreeing with you after the point that you've made all of those things with that maybe something that is viewed as more concrete evidence, then I don't really have an answer as to what I could do. I guess my, my underlying question is what responsibility do football clubs have to fans now? And I think that the reason why that's interesting. Do you, do you think, do you think that, I mean, I'm curious to hear your answer. Do you think that clubs have a responsibility to the fans in terms of, because one thing that struck me when the Arsenal fan TV thing was blowing up was that I remember watching when Arsenal fan TV had Gary Neville on and, all the all the opportunities that they wasted in having him on, but specifically, DT, I don't know if you know which one that is, but he was talking about how his father, you know, his father was one of the guys that back in the day he had he was one of the guys that Arsenal the the board of trustees at Arsenal had met with uh, when things were going wrong with a certain manager and and they spoke to the fans and they asked him what they wanted to do. Um, and then with, within a week, that manager was let go, and, and he was sort of referencing that. But then he had talked about how the re- – and he didn't say the reason, but he had talked about how he had spent $73,000 pounds a year, which was – he likened to Matteo Debucci's weekly, weekly wage uh, <laughs> supporting the Arsenal. And I was like the, – the, the thought that immediately popped up, popped up into my head, which – like you're saying, may once again go against the thoughts of the people that are reading what I'm writing or what other people are writing. But I'm like, that, I'm sorry, but that's not really their responsibility to fulfill what you want to see out of the mm. club. You're choosing to spend that money. It's it's a choice. No one's forcing you to spend it. I'm sorry if you're unhappy with the, de- the decisions that that club is making, but I don't think necessarily that they have that much of a responsibility to kick Arsene Wenger out, which is a whole nother ball of earwax, but who isn't underachieving that much anyways, or in the opinion mm. of many, not necessarily underachieving. But I'm yeah, curious I, to hear your opinion. I would have two points on this. First one is, it's all well and good saying that, you know, fans have a choice of what to do with their clubs. I actually think a, a lot of the time they don't. And maybe that's because I come from, again, I said I come from the north of England where actually you know, there's, there's a certain loyalty to clubs and a, a certain, like, I don't know, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's more guttural than that. It's more, it's more, I don't know, intrinsic to people. They have to watch their club. Now, that, that means that it complexifies things, obviously. But my position on clubs' responsibilities to fans would be I'm remarkably dispassionate on this. Like, I can understand why clubs would ignore their fan base, but at the same time, it takes two to tango and what my worry with football clubs is the same as my worry with football sports writers in, in that if we're not pr- producing for them a product that they want to see, it doesn't matter what's going on in the clubs. Football will die. Um, the reason why um, football clubs have done so well is because people were willing to pay TV revenues to, to watch their clubs pe- uh, play. Mm-hmm. It's increasingly getting to the point where people aren't willing to pay the amount of money that Sky TV want to show their clubs on, to show football on TV, and the result of that is going to be interesting in the next few seasons. I would I would suggest the same is true of football writing. You know, you, you, who cares what the fans think on one level? You write what you think is is good, but if you have no audience, 
then you, you can't continue to, to go on. So football at the moment enjoys a, a particularly fruitful economic period. But I think there's too many people resting on laurels, assuming that that's just going to go on forever. Um, and if clubs don't um, start listening to their fans, then they will eventually lose any revenue whatsoever. Once well, you, That's not just saying state stadium revenue, that's going to be TV revenue at the end of the day and et cetera, et cetera. Then football, I'll ask you this, because I think... I think there's a difference in, in sort of the, the responsibility of what we're talking about because I, I think clubs have a responsibility to their fans to treat them in a certain way because you're right. It, it goes deeper than that. It goes deeper than money. But I wasn't – I wouldn't say that they have a they have a, they have a financial responsibility like we've seen like Bayern Munich not raise season ticket prices or whatever and, and sometimes subsidize them and because you're, you're completely correct in saying that football will die without its fans. That's – Un, an undisputable fact it's true and clubs should treat their fans with respect as they would anyone else mm. within their own organization but it, what, what i would say in terms of responsibility is that just because you have an opinion about the manager about a player about whatever doesn't mean that club has to listen to you or act upon that you know much less because you pay seventy seventy three thousand yeah. dollars a year to go support it every week, they have no responsibility to that. But I would certainly say they have a social responsibility to treat their fans with a certain degree of respect. Yeah, I I think in the case of Arsenal, they there's not very much evidence that they do treat their fans with respect. I think there's a lot of football clubs that do. Um, for example, Huddersfield are going into the Premier League and their season tickets yeah. for for fans who've supported them through the years with season tickets is, I don't know, like £120 or something. It's, it's incredible. It's very, very cheap. £120 um, for a season ticket to something a Premier like, League no, club. Wait, That's look, incredible. How many, game, how many games are there? 100, they're 19, right? I think it's, it works out at about five or a game. So it's it must crazy. be around about... Um, now, I mean, we could get. We don't need to get bugged down in what we think fan responsibility is. But right. my, my, my point is precisely this, you know. If, yeah, of course... Arsenal don't need to listen to some guy on Arsenal fan TV saying, I spent a huge amount of money, therefore you should do what I want. But that should mean something, at least. It, should, it shouldn't just be dismissed as something being like, well, we don't care. You don't have to spend that money. Um, in the same way that, you know, if someone spent a huge amount of money on a car at a car dealership and it didn't work out for them, you wouldn't be like, well, it's your fault. You spent the money. You didn't have to spend that money. You know, there is, there's got to be some kind of um, client-customer uh, relationship in, in, assumed there. Um, otherwise, has football just become like a money-making venture, which we're pretending is, is about anything more than that? But the, this, is a, this conversation could run around for for days um coming back to the, the the sports journalism side of things that's that's my big worry now is that we've got to a point now where we've lost our audience to a certain extent and it's going to take a lot of effort to try and get them back um and that's why for example there's only there's only a small cabal of white middle class male writers who now basically control this the field because it's it's got so small it's got so anemic that they can only afford to pay these these guys and there has to be more done there has to be if you go into a waterstones in the uk there's there's the same old books that you'll see there there's the the same guys who are writing and a lot of these things are good you know michael cox's book is very good is it well written probably not but it's it's fantastic for sort of instilling a sense of nostalgia about the the premier league which is a league i grew up with you know the premier league basically started the season i started watching football so it's good that these things are being done but there's there's Everything is history now. All these books, it's player biographies, 
which let's face it, they're just boring. No one, like a, a player's biography is, is only ever going to be, I started playing football. I was good at it. So I carried on playing and I was good at it again at the next <laughs> level up. And then I was carried on playing and I was good again at the next level. And then I played for England in the world cup and we got knocked out in the semifinals <laughs> and everyone thought we were going to be much better than we were. Like, I, I don't want to read that. The, and then the rest of it, sort of history, the history, the footballing history of Argentina. Interesting. I've, I've read most of it. Tor, the, the history of German football, John Foote's book on Calcio. These, these are all great books, but like between those two things, I'm left with basically nothing bar Joe Kennedy's book on um, social theory and football, which is arguably one of the best books I've ever read on, on football. But is, is it because it's intrinsically good? Yes. But also it's, it, it's perceived as being better by me, I think, because it's the only book that's between biography on one side and then history on the other like there must be something more to football writing than than just those two things no i certainly agree i think you make an excellent point and i would then i would ask you the final question which is maybe and maybe you've already answered this but what do you think people need to do within the football writing community to get that audience back is is that a combination of like you said striking that balance between those those things to 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 get people back on sides yeah, I think, again, it's, it's about diversity. And it's not just diversity of authors, which is important because diversity of authors, one, is intrinsically good, but also it will lead to pieces being written that aren't being written in the mainstream. So someone like Shireen Ahmed would write a fantastic book on sports and race relations. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there's nothing that I've read out there. Uh, maybe there is. I mean, I'm certainly not particularly well read in the field, but... That, that's a book that could be that could be great to to read. But what I think needs to be done more is there needs to be a provision for actually paying people for writing long reads um, so that you don't have to write full length books because people can't afford to do that with the time. There's not enough money, basically. Yeah. Um, so we need to find a way of being able to encourage people to write, which isn't going to bankrupt people. Um, and if you did that, then you can say, well, you guys, what you need to be doing is writing the things that you're interested in. What, what we get now is, right, this is your brief. This is what you're writing uh, about. This is this is the uh, editorial line you're going to take. And regardless of what M- Miguel Delaney says, he is expected to write these pieces that are just pumped out. And he may think that's because he's a brilliant writer. But at the end of the day, the, the, the market is, a, is, is operating by market principles. And they, they're just basically shoveling these articles out like shit from a sewer um so what we need is we need some way of encouraging people to write about things because they think the things that they're writing about are worth writing about are worth hearing uh, and that's only going to work when there's some kind of financial structure in place that allows people to to write but there's, there's no money in football journalism now that that's in this country that's partly because the current government and have in the last few years just cut the bottom out of the creative markets they expect people to do this for free um and there's no encouragement that you might get financially reimbursed for things so what's happened is we've lost basically a huge swathe of of creative writers because they people just can't afford to do it mm. um and and you know it's hard like my my I would consider my, not not to want to talk about myself, but I consider my goal just you know bringing content to people. And content's a horrible word, but bringing content to people that I think is important for people to hear about, mainly from other people. Um, and to do that is it comes at a massive financial cost to myself. Um, 
to the extent that I'm not, I don't, I end up not paying taxes because I'm not earning enough to actually go beyond the tax threshold. I mean, I am now because I've been very, very fortunate, but you know, it shouldn't be the case that people are having to scrimp and save mm-hmm. just to bring good content. And, and a lot of the content that I'm bringing is like, you know, it takes a huge amount of, of effort, but it could be better. Um, and so I don't know, I don't know how we're going to get around this unless we, I don't know, return to some kind of, well, this is why Patreon's so great, right? A patronage society where, you know, back in the day, artists were creating work that they were, they were trusted with the responsibility of going out and saying, this is what you need to see. These are the works that you need to read rather than what we have now, which is I'm willing to pay you as long as you write what I want you to write. There has to be some kind of space into which people can write that they're given enough responsibility uh, and agency that they don't feel as though they're just writing to someone else's, um, copy yeah i I think i agree with all of what you said there and i think you've made some excellent points but the the podcast is running long now so (laughs) um but we do you know i think this has honestly been one of the and i i I don't say this often but i think this has honestly been one of the best podcasts that i've done at least on this on this sort of uh, platform because i i just really didn't really really enjoyed your 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 viewpoint and i'm sure the people out there listening did as well and I'm, I'm glad to bring it to them and i'm glad to do this with you is there anything that you'd like to plug you know obviously we talked about the team of john o'shea's pot summer specials that they that people can go out and listen to uh where can the good people find what you want to do yeah um, before i plug myself i would say you know the reason why this podcast has been fun is because we've been treating the the topic with respect you know we've been saying there's this football phenomena out there that we that we feel as though is you know different from us and we 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 have to treat it with respect because mm-hmm. this is so multifaceted and diverse there's so much to be said about it so just just even thinking about the the, the, the context of what we're talking about has made made for a good conversation but yeah to follow me um twitter i'm john underscore mckenzie m-a-c-k uh, john with no h um that's my Twitter handle. Um, to follow the team of John O'Shea's guys, the best thing to do is go to a team of John O'Shea's.com, which is our website, or you can follow us at team of John O'Shea with no S at the end and no A at the beginning, which is a terrible handle in hindsight. Um, yeah, beyond that, I'm always, always interested in publishing any, anything that, that I deem worthy of publishing is a terrible thing to say, isn't it? Given that I've uh, just, just given a passionate speech about how people shouldn't be, um, have, have standards to adhere to. But if you have anything that you want to get better exposure, we do publish uh, written pieces on a website uh, that do go through a rigorous, they do go through a rigorous um, critique before they go up there. And we do edit the ones that we think are wor- worthwhile. But yeah, we, we encourage anyone to, to write for that. So please do get in touch with me. Um, and thanks very much for having me on. Sorry for waffling a little bit. No, you were brilliant, and and I hope the people out there enjoyed this conversation. Like John said, go follow him. Go follow him on Twitter. Listen to the team of John O'Shea's podcast. You know, actually, really funny short anecdote. Anecdote before we go. Um, the first time I saw your podcast on Twitter, I thought it was an MLS like sort of thing because <laughs> the if I'm if I'm looking at it now, team of we've got we've got a new logo since. Yeah, well, uh, uh, you guys have this yellow logo, and it looks like the Columbus Crew symbol. And I was like, <laughs> it, is, is this a Columbus Crew podcast that's, like, following me? It could um, be worse. You know, a lot of people think that we're Sunderland podcast. <laughs> and I wouldn't wish that upon anyone. No, I, I don't think anyone would wish that upon anyone. But it, it's been great to have you on. Uh, folks, listen to, listen to everything we said and, and go do that. 
and we'll see you guys next time. Keep it right here on the Weekly Rondo.